Welcome to Into the Colaverse, a podcast that takes us on the unique journeys of faculty in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Join me, your host, Frederick Luis Aldama, as we learn of the many ways that our faculty and their cutting-edge work is transforming the world today. It's my great honor to be here talking with Hervé Pichery, professor in the Department of French and Italian. Welcome, Hervé. Uh, hi, Frederick. I am so excited to be here with you to learn more about you, your life, your work. Um, mm -hmm. Hervé, I see that, you know, we both share Stanford in common, um, <laughs> even if you are uh, younger than me. Uh, and um, but yeah, tell me, Hervé, you you work on some of the kind of great French authors, as well as avant-garde cinema, art. You also kind of pull from areas like narrative theory, narratology, but also aesthetic theory and and con other big, big concepts um, around aesthetic self-fashioning. How did Hervé in France, and maybe you can tell us a little bit about where you grew up, like was there something in the water that <laughs> brought you to literature to, to want to study cinema, Mm -hmm. um, in the way that you do. Um, and then what was your path? How did you end up at UT? Sure. So, so in terms of literature, I think like a lot of people, um, it, it was in high school that I realized that books did different things than just entertain me. And that, that was the first time I had the experience of reading books that were really meaningful to me. So I think I'm the or I was the the audience by design for books like Catcher in the Rhine, and that's what I discovered at the right time, right place in high school. And uh, from there, it was really looking for an excuse to keep reading books, and that took me through college and and designed my my majors in uh, French and English. And um, for a long time, I thought I'd I'd go on in English uh, since. The the books those books were my first loves uh, in college. I discovered uh, James Joyce I, again, right book at the right time for me at that age. Um, but it was when I took a, a course on uh, French Canadian literature that that it, it spoke to me in terms of being a French speaker who grew up in in North America, and that that opened up French literature to me. And uh, I started discovering authors uh, in this field and. Ultimately, that that's what I chose to do for graduate school. Mm -hmm. Hervé, where did you end up going for your undergraduate? So uh, undergraduate, uh, I stayed in the, the hometown that I grew up in, uh, Laramie, Wyoming. So I went to the University of Wyoming. Oh, wonderful. Yeah. And you ended up actually taking a position there. Is that right? After your PhD? I did, yeah. So um, it was kind of a funny arc that I um, finished up my PhD at a time when uh, University of Wyoming was looking for position. And it was it was the very strange, uh, strange and unexpected ways uh, experience of taking up this very different role than I'd had going there. So I, I had I got to be a student and a professor at the at the same university in the same department where I majored. And it was I think it maybe sped up part of the the learning curve about being new faculty to have seen both ends and to realize how they're different. Mm, very, yeah, very, very much so. So let me, Hervé, you, you mentioned Catcher in the Rice or Salinger and you mentioned Joyce. French, like, tell me, how did you come back or was it always there or like how did you, because this is, that's you, this is your maître, I guess, if you will. 
Yes. So um, French for me was uh, our home language. And um, growing up, I had this kind of big divide between home life and out, outside life because I had different languages, uh, speaking French at home with my parents. And I, you know, going to an American high school and then an American university, it was English language literature that I discovered first. And I think that at the tail end of college, I started discovering French literature and it spoke to me, to, to the family part of me as well, right? So I think that bridge, the interest in literature as a broad interest and the language uh, of French kind of spoke to this family part of me. And I, I suppose that it was because it spoke to the most parts of me that that's the, the field I chose to go on in rather than English or American literature. And you chose, I mean, I know you have so many things that you study, you do research and write on, but it's interesting to me that Proust and Celine have, well, certainly Proust mm -hmm. are very, very um, kind of a sort of centrifugal force in your work. Mm -hmm. um, tell me, like, but you also, the French-Canadian literature you mentioned, how how does the French francophone France and the French francophone Canadian literature connect or did it start to part ways for you? So I, unfortunately, I haven't had an occasion to revisit French Canadian literature, but I, it was one author in particular, Hubert Raquin, who is a real weirdo. And I, I confess, I like weirdo writers. And um, he played with language in a way that I'd been really excited about with someone like James Joyce. And that opened up to me the, the idea that you can do things with language in these very exciting and surprising ways. And um, in terms of Proust and Celine, again, for me, these were the, the right authors at the right time. And uh, they were both, I was able to spend years and years with them because they both use language apparently the same language, but in such radically different ways. And I was excited about inhabiting that spectrum of what Proust does with language, with his very, but pushing to its very limits, proper structures, grammatical sentences. And Celine, on the other hand, who who breaks grammar, who breaks the sentence, who uh, creates a more musical kind of version of it. It was the same language, but ultimately it was so different that that it wasn't. And that was something that I was very interested in exploring. And and figuring out better. Mm. You talk up in your work about an aesthetics of self-fashioning, and mm -hmm. I imagine this comes out of your your interest in how language shapes mm -hmm. not just personal trauma, but trauma on a um, social level um, mm -hmm. with the Great War and so on. Can you talk to us about what is this aesthetic self-fashioning? Sure. When I started out, it was the revelation again. Uh, that literature does something more than, than just tell stories or recount or convey. And that someone like Proust is looking to use language, use his uh, stories to square his relationship with his family. So uh, Proust had had kind of a difficult relationship or, or unique relationship with his mother and father. And literature is a way for him to kind of resolve the, those the situation, those angles, and figure out who he was. He was very much in between two worlds uh, with a Jewish mother and a uh, um, non-Jewish father, but both parents who looked to him to integrate into French society. There was He was part of this generational plan where mother and father would 
uh, work together to have students who could fully access French society. And uh, unfortunately for Proust, he just wasn't that person, right? He uh, identified more with his mother. He was gay. He was sick in ways that didn't correspond with his father's theories on medicine. He he just didn't fit into this family plan. And his use of literature is squaring that for himself. And then my intuition, or, or what I argued, is then he goes on to do that for all of French society when he sees that w- World War One is is damaging the the sense of society in the same way that he lived for himself with his family. Really fascinating. And you pair Proust with Céline, which for some of us who you know have read both, seem like an unlikely kind of match. Can you talk about maybe first Céline a little bit um, and what you found there and then how the, the kind of bringing the two together revealed something for you and for us? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, I did it because as a graduate student starting out, I didn't know any better and I didn't know how difficult it would be and how big of a project it would be. And I'm thankful that I, I didn't realize what it was because I wouldn't have tried it otherwise. But yeah, Céline and Proust are in many ways, a poor match in that they're, they're diametrically opposite. Céline is, is famous as a stylist, but, but also as a notorious anti-Semite who wrote deplorable uh, anti-Semitic pamphlets during World, World War II. So in a moment when he really occupied the, the position of, of the winners at the time. And if I paired the two together, it was because I had the the sense that they offered two completely different answers to the problem of what to do after the First World War. And my interest in the First World War was really as as a moment where Europe, as it had seen itself, as it had conceived of of itself, is broken. And it has to come up with something to do next, uh, a way of imagining itself as a society. Proust, on his side, works towards conserving what he can and creating readers who are able to carry within themselves what might be lost in the outside world. So for Proust, I see it very much as a move of the the outer marks of a society that become internalized in a group of individuals who carry within them the entirety of a past that might be lost. And Céline, on his end, sees World War One as well, almost as the, the end of the world. So it, it, in many ways, my sense of Céline is of a post-apocalyptic writer. He His problem is figuring out what you do to survive in a world that is after the world is over. And a lot of that has to do with this sort of musical self-fashioning. And I think he saw himself as someone who might stand in as a kind of cultural or or spiritual leader. So uh, very much a fascist position at odds with Proust. And so, yeah, these two appeared to me as the two alternatives that present themselves to French society, European society after World War I. This really interesting concept of écorché, the skin, also being, for you, you're really doing the work to tease out the sort of stylistic, the narratological shapings in these different in these different works. Can you talk about this theoretical concept um, and how it was able to kind of generate new knowledge about these writers and the time that they're kind of responding to? Sure, yeah. Um, So the the idea of of 
écorché or uh, of flayed uh, was a way for wait it, it ended up being the unifying language that I used to talk about both the, the style of the two authors uh, that that function as a kind of skin in very different ways and also the the social function that they try to carry out um, in relationship to their style so for Proust again the, the idea is that uh, the, the social body has been flayed by this this trauma that affects the winners of the Great War as much as it affects the the defeated. And for Proust, the idea is that he will cultivate the interiority of the individual, so the the personal individual skin, and that's what will contain what what was once uh, societal knowledge. For Celine, it is very much the opposite, and I my sense of him is that he sees his own musical language as a kind of prosthetic skin that he uses, first of all, to cover himself. Uh, he was wounded in the Great War, and I think for him, music is a kind of way to to recover himself in kind of bo both sense of that word. And then he, he seems to realize that maybe has the potential to do that for a whole society. So for Celine, he produces this kind of music and he he dabbles in a sort of mysticism where his music has a unifying power and those who would let themselves be carried away by his music will become part of a social body that he's recreated through this music that that serves the function as a as a skin wow yeah a very generative concept and one i'm sure that could be brought into or seen in other pairings right? Unusual pairings of authors and literature, right? Um, in response to great um, world traumas um, like the Great War. So <clears throat> you also write on sci-fi, Henri Barbeau. Um, you write on avant-garde cinema figures, André Breton, others. I don't know, give us a little bit of a what is going on in Hervé's mind? What are the things that are exciting to you? Why sci-fi and then avant-garde, um, French cinema, um, stylistics? Yeah, I, I think what they might have in common is again this this capacity to do things with language. Um, so for, for the avant-garde, I guess just the the sheer um, the sheer hubris of thinking that these authors can create. Uh, a new way of being in, in the world, right? Breton thinking that they can access the, the shape of thought through through their use of language. And um, working on these different authors in different fields, I'm struck by different movements and different authors really engaging in different fantasies about language. So for Céline, his fantasy about language is that he can somehow access a form of language that is what it represents. Uh, uh, Céline doesn't think that language points to something else. He wants to create language that is the thing that it says it is. For someone like Breton, he seems to imagine, he, he has the metaphor of the, the magnetic field. And I think for him, that's, that's his vision of how language functions, that it throws these invisible waves that, that connect people one to, one to another. And for someone like Henri Barbeau, who is essentially an unknown author, I was struck by the fact that he comes from a place of uh, Catholic mysticism, but adopts a lot of the same figures as the Surrealists do. So he, his, his 
I guess, proto science fiction book has all, all this stuff about Hertzian waves. And I think none of it really squares with how, how the science of it works. But I think he's really taken by the metaphor of this, this force that can penetrate and unite. And I, I think that's his vision of, of language as well. Really fascinating. Yeah, I've never thought about authors that where you could kind of almost declare that their use of language is a language is that you know language refers to the object and then authors that are actually using language to kind of push beyond the referent the object and even it possibly anticipate or you know a, a future um object right that doesn't exist in the in the proximate really interesting of a really what do we do with i don't know if you've thought about this much but gosh sometimes i wonder maybe this is just me grumpy me but where is the like avant-garde today like where where are our writers our artists our filmmakers that are actually not just churning out the formula and pushing or thinking in the in the ways that you know we had with Platon or even Chris Marker um, and others about the visual language language in general as precisely in the ways that you're kind of articulating it yeah so, so it's not something I'm not necessarily thought about research wise or work wise but de definitely working with students and undergraduate students in particular, Last semester, I taught a course on cinema and memory, and we we watched a mix of high art films and more popular films. And I'm struck by the insights that the students have between you know they, usually the films they haven't seen are the the French films, and they they tend to be more overtly avant garde. And I, I'm really appreciative of them finding connections with um, similar similar stories or similar moves in popular culture. So I think it might have moved into plain sight in a way that mm. these conversations happen, but maybe in more disguised. I don't think it's inaccurate to talk about a golden age of television. I think TV is doing some some much more uh, heavy lifting than, than it's done in the past. And maybe because that's happening, there's less need for a separate category of, of high art or avant-garde. Um, mm. mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's a bit beyond my my period. Mm, yeah, no, really. I think I think you're right. Actually, that the envelope is getting pushed harder and harder, like you said, in plain sight, and we don't have to go to these sort of niche areas for us to feel, say, excited about those who are pushing the envelope on aesthetic form. Just a few words about. And then I want to return to, you know, your students and your classrooms, but you're working on a project that's set in the Second World War. Yes. And um, tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the, the, the novels that you're excited about there. And yeah. Sure. Um, well, so, so the, the stakes of this project are, for me personally, the, the, the way I got to this new project was being very disturbed, like like many of us, about the the uh, emergence of authoritarian and, and fascist discourses and really thinking about the kind of work that I do and how to engage and resist these forces in a way that relies on my work um, and that, that actually calls on, on the tools that I have. 
And it was in this mode of thinking that I became very interested in looking at the, the, the period of the French occupation in metropolitan France and looking at the kinds of books that were being written in that moment and thinking about the political movements of collaboration and resistance and seeing if there weren't formal or narratological structures that underpin each. Um, so th the question I'm asking in this new project is, is there a way that collaborationist fascist writers write in their use of form that defines that political opinion, right? Does the form match the content? And can the same be said about, uh, unfortunately, the, the much more rare uh, resistance texts written in the same period? So it's very much a, a return to the question of form, um, like, like it was for Proust and Céline. And it engages with fewer classics. Um, a, a lot of these texts are forgotten texts. Um, you know, thankfully, on the collaborationist side, a lot of these texts are are, are texts that have uh, not been read since then. Uh, unfortunately, also, it's uh, a reading of texts that are still very popular from the collaboration and that trade in these fascist um, tropes and ideologies. So, uh, Lucien Robaté is is probably a, a big figure who wrote what was framed as the bestseller of the collaboration and, and again, anti-Semitic diatribe, very much a fascist text, but a, a text that one has to respect even if you deploy the ideas and respect the way that you respect something that's very dangerous. Uh, Robaté has a way of using his substantial talent to frame ideas that absolutely make no sense uh, in way that finesse that that lack of sense, and um, Celine does very much the same thing in a different in different tone. So I'm interested in stylists who are able to seemingly justify these ideologies that that are we know are, are unjustifiable. And on the flip side, I'm interested in seeing how resistance authors use their writing when so many tropes and figures were already taken by the, the collaboration. And there seems to be, you could almost call it a shadow war that happens in the literary sphere during, during this time. Really interesting. You know, <clears throat> Julio Cortazar, after the Cuban revolution mentioned famously that we, there will be, there will not be a great Cuban, a not great novel of the Cuban revolution until we have time to have distance on mm -hmm. the event. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how you might agree or complicate something like that. No, I, I think that that feels very much like the, the inverse of my project in that I take as much as I can, I try to take the view without the distance uh, of, of time. So in a way, the, the beginning of, of, of the project is a thought experiment of what was it like to read during this period in France? So I, I limit myself to the books that that were available. And it's, yeah, yeah th there is no great novel. There is no great narrative. But there are very talented authors who write these books that were popular within this very brief moment in time. Yeah, yeah, no, really, really. And of course, I'm sure this has tons of ripples and resonances with our contemporary <laughs> Kind of moment, right? <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, even if even if the mediascape has changed, I think that the rhetoric is 
very similar. Mm-hmm. French cinema memory you'd m- mentioned already as one of your classes that you you know you learn so much from your students. What kinds of movies are you watching there, or or college movie American myth? Tell 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 me a little bit about the Hervé Picheret classroom. Well, so so this semester uh, for my undergraduate course, I have the the good fortune of teaching a a Plan Two freshman course, signature course, and we're doing the the college movie, which um, you know this is an environment I've I've lived in for for a very long time. And I'm fascinated. I'm also really fascinated by the ways in which these films presume to tell students what their experience should be. So we started with very early silent films. Uh, this week we're working on Animal House, which is it has for all, for all of its many many flaws, it has staying power because it's it remains a very polemical film for the course and the students. And um, th- there is a secret pleasure to, again, using the tools we have to do this work to films that aren't necessarily great works of art. So that that's a different kind of pleasure than working on higher brow material. No, absolutely. In many ways, I want to spend my intellectual energy and time on films, novels, comic books that are discomforting in some way, right? You know, yes, there's the the stuff that we love, but um, but sometimes we generate most understanding and knowledge in and around things that make us feel uncomfortable. Uh, absolutely, and it, you know, if if I could give uh, this group of freshmen one thing that they walk away with, I, I would think it'd be that because they're very good at identifying what's objectionable uh, about. A film like Animal House, and there's plenty that is. Um, my hope is to convey that that is a, a perfect starting point to begin analyzing and taking apart and going into the deeper structures that usually yield something much more interesting and, uh, if not more disturbing, as well. Hervé, it's interesting, you know, <clears throat> with my students that do Latinx pop culture, mm. media, TV, comics, you know, one of the biggest things that we talk about is, well, yes. There's the low hanging. I'll be honest. The, there's the low hanging fruit. There's the stuff that's easy to say. This is good. This is bad. This is terrible. This is, etc. But now let's <clears throat> acquire the tools. And often for me, and I don't know if this is the same for you, narrative theory has been a kind of bedrock <clears throat> for that. Let's let's acquire the tools so that we can understand how these good or say bad things are sh- given shape <laughs> and what they how their shape affects us how it triggers you know thoughts or makes new our perception thought and feeling in and around the object um so yeah yeah there's the kind of there's that low hanging fruit and it is important to be talking about that but i think for me, anyway, um, taking students and even in my own work onto the into that deeper level of you know how how these things are built mm-hmm. is um, significant. Yeah. No. I, absolutely. Yeah. And for for Animal House, for example, um, and th- this is I discovered this um, only this time around. It's set in in 1962, which is when. Um, 
uh, all all miss is trying to integrate. So that that's the, the unspoken background of the film, and that illuminates a lot of the scenes in a very different light, and adds different stakes to the to the film. Mm, I didn't know that either. Very oh yeah, and I think it, I, I don't know if the film knew that either, but it's uh, <laughs> interesting. Well, it's there. It's a yeah. sign. It's a signpost for us. Um, so Hervé, as we wind this down, what are you? excited about it. I mean, I know you're doing your work on literature of collaboration and resistance, but what what does Hervé do, you know, for pleasure? What movies are you watching? <laughs> What's exciting for you? What novels, if you have time to even be reading novels, um, are you reading? Yeah, tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're up to. Sure. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm a big not so big now because i have a, i have a toddler and that that eats up a lot of what used to be um extra time but uh you know i enjoy popular culture very much um so right now my wife and i are catching up on uh rupaul's drag race that's a, a big show that we like to watch also uh big suckers for kind of uh, grand narrative uh, TV series, the, the, the sort of TV series that does work that film can't really do in, in the two-hour period. We recently got through uh, Better Call Saul, which, uh, you know, was really amazing for us. In terms of novels, I kind of jump around. When, when I do a, a more difficult course, so the, the graduate course I'm teaching is um, about Holocaust and World War II testimony uh, text, which is heavy reading in all senses of the word. So when I do a course like this, the kind of reading I do for myself tends to be more genre novels, so science fiction, fantasy, just just to get as far as away I can from the, the serious reading I have to do. Mm -hmm. I've been watching, um, speaking of f francophone and uh, self-fashioning, or more precisely fashioning, I've been, I binged Emily in Paris, I have to oh, admit. <laughs> I know, no. I know. I'm embarrassed to admit it. <laughs> no, that's fine. I uh, I did the first season with my wife and a friend of mine, uh, and I honestly I think they watched it just to hear me complain bitterly <laughs> through the whole thing. So I think I was the the source of entertainment for this. As uh, many uh, people, many folks in France have been <laughs> yes. complaining about this sort of fairy tale fantasy of you know what paris is all about but in any case yeah no and the policier and there's something about the french um france set police drama that just gets me like oh, yeah. I, yeah. it's brutal it's brutal it's like I, anyway yeah i've been watching a lot of that stuff too <laughs> yeah there's i i forget the title in french but there's a um it's in in Dutch, but and from Belgium, uh, police procedural. Yeah, it's along these lines too. Uh, European police procedurals do do the job in a different way. Uh, <laughs> they certainly do. Um, Hervé, it's been an absolute pleasure learning from you, um, taking us on this journey in and through aesthetics and the importance of sort of self fashioning in and through both the self, the family society, big, big world events, your classes, your interest in all sorts of really wonderful objects of study. Thank you, Hervé. Uh, thank you for inviting me, Frederick. 
Into the Colaverse is produced by the University of Texas at Austin's College of Liberal Arts. Sound engineering by the Liberal Arts Instructional Technology Services. You can find Into the Colaverse podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Thanks for listening and see you next time.